Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about the guest that we have today because he has a lot of experience. He has built, scaled, financed, exited many, many companies. So I guess without further ado, Duke Rowland, welcome to the show today. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk to me. So you went to college to Stanford and then you got your MBA at Harvard. So did many of your classmates go out and, and build successful companies? So at the time that I graduated from Stanford, starting in entrepreneurship was pretty much a novelty. Nobody was really doing it. The traditional route for people that were interested in, uh, in business was either management consulting or investment banking at the time. And uh, and then the people that, quite frankly, didn't know what they were going to do, decided to go to law school, which was where I was headed before I started my first company. Um, so there was not a lot. There are not a lot of friends uh, that have actually gone into entrepreneurship and or started companies um, from my vintage. Got it. Got it. So how did you get the um, the entrepreneurial bug? So I was fortunate enough to have a friend who had gone to my high school. He'd also gone to Stanford undergrad and then was graduating from the Stanford Business School. And he had a traditional uh, fin finance uh, background. He had been uh, worked at an investment bank in San Francisco. And he was graduating from the business school at Stanford. And I was sort of contemplating going back to law school. And he told me that he was going to that he could go go forward with and instead focus on doing something entrepreneurial. And in my gut, it just felt right. Uh, it felt right for a bunch of reasons. One is I really respected this guy. He, he, he'd been sort of a, a, a class act in his entire life. Two, the thought of starting something uh, was so exciting um, compared to the thought of going back to law school, which I would have been doing by default uh, by not having anything else to do. And third, there was just I recognized that the the idea that we had at the time represented an unmet need that uh, gave the 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 possibility of something being successful a higher chance. So for those three reasons, I ended up doing it. Uh, I was exposed to this guy. Uh, it was one of the one of the learning lessons of my life is make sure you surround yourself with exceptional talent. 
And this guy, uh, in many ways, um, was an exceptional talent and still is today. Got it. And this was the uh, the first business that you did that was Fox Hollow Technologies. Is that right? Uh, no, actually, when I was 22 uh, and graduated from Stanford, I started a restaurant company with um, this gentleman, Maurice Wardegar. Got it. We grew it to about 10 restaurants. And the interesting thing is I loved the idea of being entrepreneurial. I, I did not like the idea of running restaurants. I, I'm a very picky eater. I don't eat garlic or onions or mushrooms or celery even. And But I loved the idea. So we, we, were, we learned very early how to raise money. We learned how to grow a company. We, we grew it to about 500 employees and about 20 million in sales. And, um, and so we learned an enormous amount. But one thing that stuck with me is I didn't want to be in the retail business. So I went back to Harvard Business School with the intention of going into healthcare. Um, because I felt the, the urge and the need to want to interact with people, which is what you do in medical technologies. But I wanted to have uh, business models and financial um, opportunities that were greater than I, I felt could be realized in the restaurant business. So after after Fox Hollow, I'm sorry, after business school, yes, the first company was Fox Hollow. I mean, that's interesting because probably uh, when you went to to HBS, to Harvard Business School, you probably knew more than, than some of your teachers. I mean, building a $20 million business, you know, in, in, in sales is, is definitely not easy. Yeah, we learned, I mean, we made an enormous number of mistakes. And, uh, and, and you know, then going back to business school helped me understand uh, with more clarity a lot of the mistakes that I made. Business school was interesting because at a gut level and from an instinct level, uh, I, I feel like, yes, I knew uh, I knew a fair amount about running businesses, but there was a lot of there were a lot of fa frameworks and structures and financial um, engineering capabilities that I didn't have uh, awareness of that uh, business school gave me. So I came out of business school with uh, an entrepreneurial's an entrepreneur's sort of experience having run those restaurants, but with. Uh, more practical and pragmatic skill sets that I felt could be applied to the healthcare industry. And that's what I did. Got it. Got it. So then let's talk about your, your immediate business right after business school, Fox Hollow Technologies. Tell us about this experience. So this was a company that was doing extraordinary things. It was focused on developing a technology that would clean plaque out of hearts. Uh, and it was um, it, it had a little saw in a catheter that would go in and, and carve out plaque from the arterial walls. It was interesting because at the time, um, drug eluting stents, which uh, changed the profile of treatment modalities for patients with cardiovascular disease, had not come out. So this company was going to try and open up arteries to prevent people from having significant chest pain and, and even having heart attacks. Uh, but about three years into that development, uh, drug limiting stents came out and the landscape completely changed. So the company had to really pivot from being something that was focused on uh, the heart to something else, or it would have gone under. And so the idea was that we're going to go and, and pivot to the peripheral vascular space where uh, there are an enormous number of vessels that have coronary artery disease, it's peripheral vascular disease in this circumstance, 
And um, there was really no good option because stents weren't at the time an effective solution for treating uh, uh, calcified or plaque-ridden vessels in the, in the legs. So uh, we pivoted the company, and uh, there was an extraordinary number of really good people there. We took that company public, and then we ultimately sold it to uh, EV3, which became Covidian, and then subsequently Covidian became Medtronic. Got it. Uh, so and then so yes, it was a it was a great experience. Again, an enormous number of um, f- mistakes and failures were hidden by a very positive outcome, which was the sale to EV3. I think the lessons from that company are that it's very hard to be a single product medical device company, uh, especially uh, as you get to the point where you've got 150, 175, or even 200 million in sales. Uh, the second thing is. Um, you need to have an orientation as a company about how you're going to expand. The, the IPO is not the endpoint. In this case, the endpoint was either being a sustainable company, which would have come through aggregating other assets, which the company was not set up to do, or it would have been, uh, uh, or you were looking for a, for a sale. And unfortunately, we were able to find somebody who had a bunch of other products that they needed, uh, a, a high growth product like Fox Hollow, to benefit them. So. Um, learned a lot uh, and uh, took those skills into my next company, which was CV Ingenuity. And we'll we'll get into that in, in just a second. So what were the terms of that transaction? It was a $780 million deal. It was more of a merger with EV3. EV3, which was the company that uh, was leading the transaction, uh, had a market cap of about a billion dollars at the time. They had a whole slew of not so differentiated products and we had a high growth differentiated product and so when you put those two together and took out a lot of the infrastructure costs associated with having you know two sales forces and and then merging them into one two you know finance offices two two quality groups when you took when you took a lot of the synergies uh, and put them together you could create a very interesting profitable company and that was the industrial logic of of that merger. And it ended up working because that company ended up growing and then selling about two and a half, three years later to Covidian for uh, about $3 billion. Nice. Nice. I mean, that's, that's amazing because as you, as you probably know, uh, with, with all of these same experience, most of, most of the uh, cases, the acquisitions failed. That's, that's, what- uh, that's a tough part. So, uh, so then, so then after this, you founded CV Ingenuity in 2009. So why so quickly after the sale of the last business? Well, I felt there. So when I was at Fox Hollow, I had this idea uh, based on some people that were in the organization um, diligence. They'd found a, some, a technology out of Germany, uh, which combined paclitaxel with a balloon. And paclitaxel is a drug, it's an oncology drug that is used on drug-eluting stents. And the idea that we had was you could go and basically put the paclitaxel together with the balloon and avoid having to have sustained delivery via a stent. This technology and in the, in the, the science had been proven out in a very rudimentary way in Germany. And so even though I was very, very, very fresh off of Fox Hollow's sale, I felt the time was ripe to to jump in and start this company. Um, it was a it was a tough time to start a company, uh, considering the 
the economic, the macroeconomic conditions at the time. The world was falling apart. The the the, the bank crisis had hit, and the loan crisis. Everything was terrible, and I was raising money to um, to start a company that would ultimately require a hundred million dollars to get to regulatory approval. Um, but you know, from that process and from the conviction I had in the opportunity, I was able to actually get um, some people that maybe felt sorry for me. Actually, I, you know, but they they ended up putting in a couple million dollars, which which seeded that company and enabled us to get off the, off the road. My feeling, though, one thing I'll say is that you're you know, it's very hard to go invent a company. Uh, it's 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 easy to be in a company and see where there are unmet needs. And go after those unmet needs uh, with informed perspective. And so the urgency with which I attacked CV Ingenuity was born from the recognition that the technology we were developing at CV Ingenuity had the ability to completely disrupt the technology that we had just sold to EV3, which was the Fox Hollow technology. So I felt an urgency which uh, parlayed and translated into creating that company very quickly after selling Fox Hollow. And why was the focus here only in the U.S.? So uh, to me, like I said, this technology was a technology that uh, was going to cost $100 million to get to approval. And um, to, to make that technology from a financial standpoint, I needed to have, I needed to make trade-offs. I needed to say, we're, we're going to go after one therapeutic area instead of another. We're going to focus on, uh, we're going to focus on the United States instead of Europe. Uh, in fact, we even used, uh, we didn't develop our own balloon. We, we went and licensed the balloon from Covidian because I believe that the value creation of our technology was focused on the chemistry uh, and applying the chemistry and applying the paclitaxel to the balloon. It was not based on the balloon. So by by making strategic trade-offs like geographic trade-offs, not going to Europe and focusing on the United States, not going after the heart but focusing entirely on the peripheral vascular space, not developing our own balloon uh, uh, catheter but instead focusing on an existing catheter and identifying a chemistry that was great, we were able to save tens of millions of dollars and uh, keep a very, very focused team on what I felt was the value-creating uh, driver, which was the chemistry. When we sold that company, we we had about thirty million put in, and we sold it for about three hundred million within three years. When we sold it, we still only had twenty two people in the company, so we were very very lean. And that that leanness came from the trade offs that allowed us to be hyper focused on the value creation. Got it. So so this you you were just talking that this company was sold for three hundred million. And this was your second rodeo. I mean, I mean, third rodeo, really. But, but I guess at, at this really high level, probably the um, the second one. But the the question that comes to mind is, you already had gone through that uh, M and A process before with Follow Hollow, uh, and you probably had a lot of learnings that you brought with you. So, what were some of these lessons that you learned that you really kept in mind during this M and A process, putting this transaction together? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I I think that the M and A process is uh, as much of an art as it is a uh, it's much it's as much art as it is uh, science. Meaning that there is 
an enormous amount of pre-work that goes into creating uh, a transaction. You can't, you cannot sell a company. A company is a strategic acquisition by an acquirer. And what that means is a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs say, okay, I'm going to build it to a certain point. I'm going to keep it in a, in a black box until that point. And when that point happens, I'm going to go and shop the technology to a bunch of buyers and someone's going to pay a lot of money. And in fact, we might even get an auction going and, and drive the price up higher. I took a totally different approach. My feeling is I know when I start a company who the buyer is and why that buyer needs our technology. And I engage with that buyer consistently over the span, the lifetime span of our company. So for example, with CV Ingenuity, in my heart of hearts, I believe that Covidian was the only real buyer for that technology. And so I went to Covidian and contrary to a lot of uh, opinions at the time, I focused on developing a relationship with them that was both strategic, meaning letting them know what we were doing and how we were going to do it, and then demonstrating that we did it over time, but also financial. And so I actually used Covidian's balloon as the balloon catheter for our, for our, for our technology. And people thought I was absolutely crazy. You know, why would you go and uh, shut down other opportunities to potentially sell the company by partnering exclusively? Uh, it's not exclusively, but partnering with Covidian in their balloon. And my feeling, again, was that I believed Covidian was the buyer. I believed that uh, nurturing that relationship from inception would uh, enable them to start thinking strategically about ac acquiring CV ingenuity as opposed to opportunistically assessing it at, at some point in time. And I also felt that partnering with CV um, partnering with Covidian would not preclude me from being from selling the technology to a Boston Scientific or an Abbott uh, or a Medtronic. Um, the reason being is that we had the ability, uh, based on the non-differentiation of the balloon, we had the ability per the FDA to go and very easily shift from the Covidian balloon to a Boston balloon or a Medtronic balloon. Because remember, the, the, the technology was, the sophistication of the technology was not the balloon, it was the coating of the balloon with the, with the excipient and the, and the chemistry. So uh, it, was a, it, was, it was relatively unique at the time, but it was based on my true and utter belief that Covidian was the logical buyer of that technology. So that was one thing I learned. The second thing I learned, and I still use very, very extensively to this day is that um, you you really you really have to focus on establishing trust trust with people who you work with your employees trust with your financial backers and also trust with the people that are ultimately going to be the acquirers in this case it was Covidian and I've always believed that trust is the conduit of influence and confidence is a byproduct of trust. And so if you don't have trust first, you're not going to be able to have the confidence that's required to be able to go and sell a company for three, four, five, eight hundred million dollars to a larger partner. Because if you don't, if they don't trust you, uh, they're not going to believe in you and therefore your confidence is going to be eroded. 
confidence is what enables you to sell these companies uh, at the time that that you need to sell them. And uh, I, I think you need to have a high level of trust and you need to be really confident in your technology. And you can't be in a situation where one of those is there and the other one isn't. Uh, you have to have both of those and those take time. So trust and confidence were, were uh, a really critical point. The third and maybe the most important point in terms of selling companies is having optionality. And optionality means the ability to go and sell the company or not. Optionality means having the financial wherewithal from a from a corporate funding standpoint to be able to say, we we don't need to sell the company, we can go forward. And it's a little bit like dating. If you if you uh, if you really, really have just one girl that you want to go after and and you don't have any other options, she's going to sense that. And uh, you're going to not be as attractive or interesting to that girl. Similarly, in a company, in a transaction mode, if you only have one option for the disposition of your company, uh, the buyer is going to sense that there's some desperation there. And they might still buy it, but more realistically, they're not going to buy it or they're going to force a significant discount on the value of that asset. Got it. Got it. And one thing that, that I found like really uh, exciting about this same um, entrepreneurial journey of yours, Duke, is that you pulled uh, Jack Dorsey uh, kind of thing. You know, when, when you're kind of like running and leading two hyper-growth companies at the same time. So in this next chapter, you were really leading Spirox and then also Epic's Therapeutics. So would you kind of like walk us through what, what was this chapter in your entrepreneurial journey like? Sure. Um, so to me, the, the success factor uh, is really a determinant on, on three things. You need to have uh, a, a terrific team. You need to have a terrific technology and you have to have a business model. And the traditional business is you, 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 found a great, you find a great technology and you develop that technology, you build a team around that, and then you, you sort of opportunistically identify a business model. I've turned that completely on its head. I will not go forward without a significantly defined business model. No matter how good the technology is, if I don't see from day one an opportunity to within... 48 months, drive that a very, very uh, strong return on equity, I won't do it. So I lead with the business model. The next most important thing to me is the team. And then finally, the third most important thing is the technology. And people say, well, why would you, why would you focus on a business model and a team over the technology? It's, it goes back to my restaurant days. You know, you could have an incredible, an incredible dish that a chef wants to put out. But if you don't have the infrastructure and if you don't have the capital to produce that dish consistently, no matter how good that dish is, it's never going to see the light of day because the company's going to, the restaurant's going to go out of business. In the restaurant business, if you don't have a very, I mean, I'm sorry, in the healthcare business, if you don't have a very defined business model, you're not able to recruit capital. If you can't recruit capital, you can't recruit the best teams. And no matter how good the technology is, that technology will see, not see the light of day. So the reason I have been able to drive multiple companies at the same time, and, and in this current instance, it was Epix and Spyrox, is because uh, the business models of both of those opportunities were very, very defined. But more importantly, I had at that point incredible people that I'd worked with at both CV Ingenuity 
and at Fox Hollow that I trusted, that were best in class at what they did. And by that, I mean able to turn liability opportunities like large clinical trials or product development or regulatory submissions, turn those things from liabilities into assets by being exceptionally good at what they were doing. So what I what I really tried to do is empower leaders within those organizations to drive those technologies forward. And I focused on the business model part, raising the money, uh, driving the strategy towards that value creating endpoint, and then ultimately the disposition of those assets. So it 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 really define it's really the opportunities are really defined by the business model, and uh, they're also uh, capitalized on by extraordinary people. Uh, not a lot of people, but but people that uh, are very very good at what they do have proven and proven and demonstrated track records of winning that are driving these organizations with me. Got it. So what was the uh, business model of Spyrox? The business model of Spyrox was to take the combination of CV Ingenuity, which was very nimble, uh, low invested capital amounts, and very robust clinical data, and combine it with the lessons of Fox Hollow. Fox Hollow, we didn't have robust clinical data. We didn't have um, uh, an enormous amount of technical um, we had great technology, but we didn't have the um, the data that supported that technology. We did have great sales and marketing. And so the idea of the opportunity for Spyrox was in the ear, nose and throat space. It was to go and be very, very tight from a cost development standpoint on getting a technology to approval in the United States and then be very targeted with a sales and marketing engine that could capitalize on that clinical data to drive that product forward. We built that company. We brought in uh, KKR, which is a large private equity firm. We had Venrock, we had uh, Aisling, we had um, HealthQuest, we had WTI. We had, a, we had an enormously strong um, financial back uh, backdrop, and we were planning on growing that company. The business model dictated that it made sense for us to sell that company, and we did that. But we did that because we wanted to, not because we had to, which, again, goes back to that lesson of optionality. Yeah. And, and what were the terms of this one? This one uh, will end up being a $250 million exit, something like that, on about $60 million invested. Wow. Wow. I mean, very impressive. So then you... It seems that I don't know how you do this and, and at what time you sleep, uh, uh, Duke, but you combined again Epic's, uh, Epic's Therapeutics with, with, with Ajax. So, so what was the, before we go into Ajax, what was the business model of uh, Epic's Therapeutics? So Epic's was an interesting technology. Um, Epic's was originally a company called Advanced Cardiac Therapeutic, and it's in the electrophysiology space. The, the business that the technology was focused on providing the electrophysiologist with more information about creating the lesions in the heart and uh, more information by providing more real-time feedback. And in this case, it was using temperature, which is the truest proxy for lesion formation. When you get to 50 degrees C, you know you're making a lesion. If you're above 70 C, you're, you're probably burning uh, burning the the tissue, so our feeling was if we could if we could have a technology that would uh, know 
that you're getting to 50C. And then once you got to 50C, know that uh, you needed to shut down the RF ablation. Um, you could you could really do two things. You could eliminate extra burning and you could also optimize the burning because in the absence of lesion feedback, physicians are afraid to burn for too long. So potentially they underburn. The technology was a company that had, they'd had about $25 million put into it. And the company was, was running out of money and failing primarily because they didn't have a business model. And I didn't think the team was very strong. So I went in and bought that company with my own money for about $500,000 um, and restructured the team with an extraordinary group of people that uh, were a combination of people that I knew were experts in the electrophysiology space, as well as people that had worked with me historically. We raised money from NEA and, uh, and we built the team. One of the things I said, and we built the company, one of the things I said earlier is that the technology is third behind the business model and the team. In this case, that, that model made an enormous amount of sense because three or four months after, maybe actually six months after buying that technology, we realized that the concept was good, but that the, techno the concept of using temperature sensing was good, but the technology was too fragile to be a mainstream uh, high use technology in the marketplace. So leveraging that team and the business model, we ended up developing a new and entirely new technology that did the same thing in a different way, used temperature as the proxy for lesion creation, but uh, re restarted a new technology. And then that technology uh, we just sold actually to Medtronic on on Friday uh, for an undisclosed sum, but it's somewhere between 300 and $400 million. Wow. So, it's it's it again it was it was the team and the business model that drove because technologies are going to have to morph and um and you're going to need a team that can be nimble to to drive a technology that uh that originally makes sense but needs to be optimized or to develop new capabilities around a technology that you didn't anticipate when you started the company absolutely so at what point uh, do does uh, ajax come into the picture so uh, Ajax is an entity that was formed by KKR and me. And the idea for Ajax was, listen, there's a bigger need for capital allocation than a smaller need. And that's primarily driven by business models. You, 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 you know, my feeling is if you're a venture-backed company, you're spending an enormous amount of time as the CEO trying to find your next capital source. What I do, because I lead with a business model, is I focus on how much it's going to take from inception to completion, to value creation, which is the completion, to get that company from A to Z. And then instead of raising that money sequentially, I raise that money in one fell swoop. So I take capital risk out of it. Capital risk, though, um, and, and the ability to do that is a function of having very having a high level of confidence in your team that they can execute. And we'd been able to demonstrate that. So what KKR did is they said, why don't we put $100 million um, behind you, Duke, so that you can go and leverage uh, this, um, this model that you have, business model first, then team, then technology over several assets. And that's what, that's what we've been doing with Ajax. So Ajax is a, is a company, but it's an operating company that has the ability to write 
pretty significant checks. We're currently um, just closing on another $150 million that's going to be Ajax 2 that uh, we're going to, we're, we're going forward with three new companies that um, not at liberty to talk about quite yet, but uh, are very interesting and compelling along the lines of what we've talked about in the first five companies. Got it. So what are the, um, the type of profiles of, of companies that, let's say with Ajax, you guys would get involved with? What's the, so, what's the thesis? So one of the things I talked earlier in this conversation about trade-offs, for me, you have to be able to take a, an opportunity and whittle away at risk so that there's one fundamental risk. It could be regulatory risk. It could be reimbursement risk. It could be market adoption risk. It could be, you know, capital risk. And then instead of having to solve for multiple variables that create a confounding challenge for a CEO, you're really focusing on, on one significant risk. And my belief is that you should be able to take an opportunity, distill it down to that one risk for less than $3 million. So for very limited amounts of money, you can go you can address market need, you can address reimbursement risk, you can address regulatory risk, manufacturing, financial risk, et cetera. And then you can make a decision about, okay, does the execution team that's required to capitalize on that, that isolated risk support, and does the time and the money need to do that, support the business model? So what we've done with these new technologies is done is basically identified technologies that we've been able to isolate to one risk. And then we're funding those risks. Um, we're funding teams that are are, are are proven with me and uh, with business models that are, are not you know, dissimilar to the business models we've talked about here. And um, and with a clear, clear execution path to value creation. So that's that's what we look for. Got it. And one of the things that uh, that I wanted to ask you here, Duke, is is I mean, it's impressive how you have been able to manage not just doing one business, doing two. And also doing several initiatives at the same time. I mean, I see that you're also uh, you were also involved with with Harvard as an entrepreneur in residence. But what what really was there for me in terms of a, of a question that came up is as founders and you know as a founder myself as well, our biggest resource is is time, right? And and the way that we are investing time is is everything. So from your perspective and and knowing what you know now and 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 being able to really manage very effectively your time like what kind of piece of advice would you give to the founders that are listening about managing their time yeah so to me time is the most important thing and you know i was reading a biography on jp morgan uh about 8 years ago and he was basically saying that he would take you know 2 hours to think every day. So he would take time out of his day. This guy was busy, right? Running one of the biggest companies in the world at the time, richest guy in the world at the time. And he would take two hours to think. And there's something in that, which is that people uh, that spend all of their time doing busy work don't have the time to step up and look uh, over the trees and see strategically what they should do be doing because they're so focused on the minutiae and the day-to-day. They're focused on the activities as opposed to the strategic. In order to be able to focus on the strategic over the activities, you need to have people that know where the company's going and know what their responsibility is to the company's ability to get there. And if you have great direction, all of a sudden you're not having to oversee 
every aspect of the company on a 24-7 basis. So you can focus on doing what JP Morgan did, which was looking at where the company needs to go strategically. So I, I, I run these companies, but uh, I have incredible people that do the operations, incredible people that do the quality, the regulatory. And these people are best in class, better than I would ever be able to do. So I entrust them with the companies. I always say that there are three capabilities that I will have in a company. One capability is bet the company execution. So somebody who can execute at a high, high level and that you're willing to bet the, 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 the company's success on. The second one is someone who you can bet the company on from a technology standpoint, right? So someone who invented a technology and they understand it better than anybody else in the world. And then the third one is a bet the, bet, the, bet the market expert. So someone who understands the market and how this fits into the market better than anybody else. Well, if you have those three capabilities, a technology, an execution, and then a market, uh, those capabilities understand where, where the company needs to go as well as you do and can execute on that. That frees me up to focus on the strategic and focusing on uh, on, on the value creation. That's how you do it. And that's how, at least that's how I've been able to do it. And that's why I can do multiple things uh, and multiple companies at the same time. I love it. I love it. So one question that I always uh, ask our guests is if you could go back to the past, and I know that this is impossible, but if you could do it and give yourself one piece of advice, business advice before launching a company, what would that be and why? So my one thing that is, uh, is to focus, I, I guess there's two things. So, so I'm going to answer your question with two answers instead of one. One is do your homework up front, right? There's that, there's that concept of pr uh, prior preparation prevents piss poor performance, right? The six P rule. And I learned that when I was like a, in my sophomore in high school and, um, and I really didn't understand it. But when you get to the point where you're putting in and you're asking people to put their lives online to work for you. When you're talking about developing technologies that are going to go into human beings and have the difference um, to, to an outcome of being the patient being healthy or dying, when you're talking about taking tens of millions of dollars from investors, well, you know what? You better be prepared before you do that. And uh, you don't, it's not a good idea to just run and start a company. Uh, it's a good idea to really think through it. Think through the three drivers of value. Does the business model make sense? Can you build the right team to execute on that business model? And does the technology and the development of that technology support that business model? So prior preparation is, is, a, is a really important piece for me. The second thing is follow your gut and, and have integrity. And if you go back to something I said in the very early parts of this conversation, trust builds confidence. So you can't have confidence without trust. And uh, trust is the framework and it's the basis of all communication, both internally and externally, internally with your employees, externally with your, uh, your founders, and ultimately with the people that are going to buy your company. And, and to have that trust uh, has to come from following your gut. Because you can't sell something, you can't believe in something uh, unless your gut is behind it 100%. So I would say prior preparation, and I would say follow your gut and make sure that you're uh, you're doing something that, from an integrity standpoint, makes sense for you. That's uh, that's very powerful, very powerful, Duke. So, what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? 
Uh, the best way to reach me is via my Ajax email, and that email is droline. So it's D is in Duke, R O H L E N is in Nancy at ajaxhealth.com. Wonderful. Well, Duke, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciated the time. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.